sure to do so. Okay, enough about that. You're, you're here for today's program. Uh, I'm going to let uh, Joel Kurzman, uh, our uh, senior fellow, uh, do all the introductions and the honor. Uh, Joel is uh, one of the great gems of the Institute. Uh, he's uh, acts as executive director of our senior fellow programs, among other things. Uh, he is uh, a uh, uh, former uh, editor of the uh, Harvard uh, Business Review, uh, columnist for the New York Times, uh, and a prolific author uh, in his own right. Uh, and so, Joel, turn it over to you. Thank you, Mike. Uh, is this uh, a little loud here? I can, yeah. Okay. So, I, uh, thank you very much for coming. I'd like to uh, introduce our panelists, who uh, I, I feel, given their relationship, I feel kind of as an I'm in the middle of something here that's been going on a long time I, uh, in terms of, of the fact that, that AG and Roger have been collaborators with regard to strategy, and now I'm sort of positioned in the middle between them. I, I mean nothing by it. Uh, but uh, l let, me, let me introduce AG. AG uh, was uh, president, CEO, and chairman of P&G, uh, which was founded in 1837, and, which you'd, and you'd expect a company that old and that large with so many billion-dollar brands to be very traditional uh, and uh, hidebound. But under AG's leadership, it has been recognized as one of the most innovative companies in the world. Uh, during his tenure, uh, P&G increased its market capitalization by about 110 billion dollars, uh, which is not a small feat, and did it largely through innovation and a refocusing of the strategy. And that's what we're going to talk about today, which is the strategic component of that transformation and, and how, how he thinks about strategy and how his thought partner, if I, if I can call, it, mm -hmm. call you that, yeah. Roger, uh, also thinks about strategy and the dialogue that they have. And Roger is the dean of the Rotman School of Business, uh, which is uh, one of the top business schools in the world. It's in Toronto, or as Canadians say, Toronto. Toronto. <laughs> and uh, we're, we're lucky to have him. Roger's a prolific author, one of the founding group members of the Monitor a consulting firm, which is one of the preeminent uh, strategic consulting firms in the world, uh, and uh, the author of, of many books, and also someone who has brought designed and design thinking and the whole concept of innovation into the strategy-making process and into the business process. So we, we really have two great co-authors who have been working together for a long time, uh, to really create a great company and out of a great company. And I say that because it's, it's not as if P&G was in trouble when you took it over and, and, and became its CEO. It was, it was flourishing, it was profitable, and it was big. But you made it much bigger. So my question is, A.G., to you first, as you began thinking about P&G, what, what was on your mind? Did you walk in knowing where you wanted to take it, the, the, what new directions, what products you would keep, what you would acquire, what you would get rid of? <laughs> no, not exactly. It was, uh, it was, how shall I say, a surprising, um, a surprising election, okay? Um, I wasn't planning on 
becoming the CEO of the company. I was surprised to become the CEO of the company. Um, but you weren't you know, working in the mail room. I mean, no, were, I wasn't. I yeah. wasn't working in the mail room. That's true. But uh, you know, we we had we'd just been through a succession eighteen months before, and I, I suspected that would I expected that one to last longer. Um, you know, interestingly, I guess I'd say three things, Joel. One, um, I was never interested in bigger. So the fact that the team um, over the first decade of this century you know, doubled the sales and quadrupled the profit and added over, you know, 100 billion in market cap. Um, you know, that's all great, but that wasn't our goal, okay? I mean, our goal was to get better, okay? Um, and I was pretty clear about some things and I wasn't so sure about others. Um, I was pretty clear that a company that was rich in brands and products um, had become a little internally focused. In my view, we were product myopic and brand myopic, and I felt like we had to get a lot more consumer focused. And every time I say that, people go, how can it be P&G wasn't focused on the consumer? But believe me, we weren't, okay? I mean, we did our consumer research and all the rest of it, but we weren't really focused on the consumer. Um, you know, and there's been a lot written about, um, you know, flipping the organization chart over so the consumer was the boss and, you know, I was enabling at the bottom of the pyramid and all the rest of it. Um, you know, focusing on winning the first and second consumer moments of truth when she shops and when she or another family member uses our brand or product in the home, you know, focusing very hard on consumer experience and consumer value. So I was pretty sure about those kinds of things. I was pretty sure that our fundamental business model, you know, in, in Rogers and my parlance, how to win was going to have an element of differentiated, branded, superior products, you know, underpinned by leading innovation. I was pretty sure about that. But, um, and the third thing I was sure of, and this is probably the most important one and probably a good lead into our discussion, I was also pretty sure that the company had to become a lot more strategic. Um, we had done pretty well for then 165 years by being inventive. You know, we had invented new categories with new brands and new products, um, but we had become sprawling. You know, the company I joined in the mid 70s was sort of a quarter food and beverage, a half cleaning products, and another quarter paper products. And by the time 2000 rolled around, we were in, you know, we were in parts of healthcare, we were in parts of beauty care, we were at a growing personal care business, we had a pet care business, you know, and, I, and the list goes on. We were in 25 different industries or categories. We were on the ground in 80 countries. We were selling our products into 170. So we needed to become more strategic, and strategy is all about choices, you know, choices to position yourself with your consumers in a marketplace against your competitors, choices that enable you to create competitive advantage and create value. So I was sure about that part. So, so Roger, as you, as you begin with this, this kind of uh, survey of the company and you say it's broad, diffuse, maybe too big, maybe in certain areas too small in others, how, how do you then, uh, to use AG's words, uh, choices. How do you make those choices, and, and what are some of those choices? 
Well, um, I think the tricky part in a company as big as Procter, so uh, merely a $40 billion company at that, at, at, that, at that time, is that there needed to be choices made at a number of levels. So what did the corporation want to uh, do overall? But also, also in each of those 25 different businesses, they were different enough that you couldn't say they would all do exactly the same. You're, you're not going to win in paper towels exactly the way you're going to win in, in uh, uh, skin care. And so, so we, we knew we had to tighten up uh, choices and make the, the, the choices stronger in each of those 25 or so uh, businesses and then make sure that the corporation as a whole stood for something and had, and had strengths that would bring to bear on all of those businesses. So I think that was, that was one, of the, uh, one of the challenges. So in, in, at both levels, what we had to ask are a set of what we think of as five questions. What was our winning aspiration? Where were we going to play? How were we going to win where we've cho chosen to play? What capabilities we had to build to make sure we could win the way we wanted to? And what management systems we had to build to make sure that we'd have those capabilities maintained on an ongoing basis to win where we've chosen to play and meet our aspirations. And so that's really what we set out to do both at the corporate level, where did Procter & Gamble want to uh, play overall? Uh, how did it choose to win, and at individual uh, business levels. Uh, by the way, we'll be ha taking questions, and uh, we have, we'll be taking them by text or email. So if you see up there uh, where it says ask a question, those are the uh, text and email uh, addresses for questions. We'll also have a handheld mic in case uh, anyone wants to return to the past. Uh, so, 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 so let me ask you then, uh, give, given the way um, Roger laid out that assessment of choices, you, you, one of the things you did is you sold Pringles. Uh, how did you make that assessment that Pringles, of all things, didn't fit within P&G? Okay. Um, Pringles is a chip. It's a snack chip. And, and um, the broader decision that we made, the broader strategic choice that we made was we were going to exit the food and beverage businesses, which were primarily North American businesses, and we were going to invest the cash and people in beauty, health, and personal care. And... Um, it was all based on a few strategic choices. One was the structure and attractiveness, relative attractiveness of the industries. Um, I'll just click through a few things. Um, the food and beverage businesses were slower growing. Um, they were more local, not as globalizable. Um, they were globalizable more meaning, meaning a brand? Or meaning in the U.S., coffee tastes vary by by region and even by city, okay? Um, we preferred businesses that we could globalize, you know, one Pantene, one Pampers, okay? Um, more importantly, most food businesses are fundamentally commodities, okay? They're made from food products. Um, there's not a lot you can do with peanuts and peanut butter from an innovation standpoint. There's not a lot you can do with cooking oils and shortenings with Crisco. Um, you know, the, the trend in, in oil was olive oil, <laughs> okay? <laughs> uh, the trend in peanut butter was only Americans eat peanut butter, 
for the most part. And we don't eat very much peanut butter unless there's a recession or we have kids in the household, okay? <laughs> so, um, you know, the trends in the businesses weren't good from a growth standpoint. They were more commodity-like. They didn't play to our innovation strength. And, um, and frankly, we thought, we thought they were a better strategic fit with others. We sold Pringles to Kellogg's, good strategic fit. We sold peanut butter to Smuckers, peanut butter and jelly, good, good strategic fit, okay? So that one was actually, that was easy, mm. right, Roger? Conceptually. Yes. It yep. was not difficult from a thinking standpoint. Yep. The hard part about that one was selling, every, selling it to the board. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, I had to walk into the board and say, gee, I'd really like to sell off about $8 billion worth of sales and, you know, a couple billion dollars worth of profit. And, oh, by the way, I'm not exactly sure where we're going to put it all, but I think it's going to go over here. So we ended up selling, selling it sort of a block at a time, you know, every couple of years. But, um, but that was it. I mean, most of... And, and did you use that, the, the proceeds to invest in new business, yes. or did you give it to shareholders? Some of each, but most of it got reinvested. We were very fortunate once we got going to be able to sort of drive an organic sales growth rate of 5 or 6% in an industry that only grew 2 or 3. So we were, we were growing organically at about tri- twice the rate of the industry. And then on top of that, we were in an acquisitive period. You know, we acquired... Clairol and Wella and Gillette and a number of smaller um, businesses. So we were growing another five or six points on top. So it was reinvested primarily in innovation um, or in acquisition. And, and how, how did you see that the decision-making process take place, Roger? How, what, what, what was your role in that? Well, I mean, it was always as a as a thinking partner to uh, to AG, and every once in a while, uh, the cry on the shoulder guy when he came back from the board, and they said, "You can't, you can't do that." Uh, uh, to which AG's uh, typical reaction was, "Yet," uh, uh, <coughs> uh, because everything that he wanted to get sold eventually got got sold. But no, it, it, the um, it was it was a, a a process at the at the corporate level. It's hardest at the corporate. Uh, Level to to define the the where to play how to win uh, strategy because that, you know if you think about it and, team, and and say what you mean when you say where to play what, what are you talking about the so, market yeah or? what what fields of endeavor how and, and it can be defined any any sort of uh, sort of way but in, in in this case the kind of the where to play of of, of P and G as as uh, described by A G was in in uh, you know household care and and personal care and beauty care. That was the where that we were most interested in, that we saw the greatest ability to have competitive uh, advantage because it used a set of capabilities, or how to win, that we came to see as the capabilities that we would build around, right? An, a, an ability to understand the customer, an ability to brand, an ability to innovate, an ability to go to market with partners in an advantaged way, a global scale. You notice AG talked about, well, and some of these businesses are only, only domestic, and even the domestic scale is broken up by di- differences. Well, that didn't leverage our, our global scale. So when we got to the point of being able to say the how is going to be uh, some amalgam of those five things at the corporate level, that fit better with some wares uh, than others. The where of, uh, of food just didn't, didn't fit as well. So the thinking... 
I think process uh, uh, really was driving at the corporate level that ability, that ability to say, this is what matters. Um, and then when you did the strategies at the level of the, of the businesses, what it turned out is you could come up with better strategies for the businesses that utilized those, those capabilities, right? They seemed to win more and better. And so the businesses that didn't fit started to fall out because when you went to do their strategy, when you went to do pharma strategy and said, okay, how, d how does our go-to-market capability help here? Oops, these are not sold through food, drug, mass, mass merchandisers, they're sold through hospitals and doctors. We have to have a completely separate channel uh, for that. You know. Uh, there's this huge barrier called the Food and Drug Administration where you've got to have scale and all sorts of experience in dealing with them. Oops, we don't have, we don't have that either. Yes, innovation works. Branding, lots of the, lots of the drugs you, uh, you produce, actually the consumer doesn't ever even know they're, they're taking this or a drug delivered through the hospital or the, or the like. So, so once you have that higher level strategy set of, of, a, of a how we're going to win, some of the where to plays become much more compelling and you can make an ever more compelling case to the board and, and, and shareholders that this business would have a finer, happier home uh, uh, somewhere else. So you, you sold and changed uh, quite a bit of the company and um, what, uh, you must have had a lot of confidence it would work. <laughs> If you're talking well, about 25%. Yeah, yeah. Well, for, you know, we didn't sell all 25 at once. Um, you, you, um, once we made the broad decisions, the broad choices, um, we were going to grow. We, we had been milking our core. We had been taking cash out of our core and investing in new. And, you know, my foundation strategic choice was we were going to grow our core. And, you know, our core meant those core industries. Our core meant our core brands, the brands where we were the leaders worldwide. Our core meant our core product technologies. We had 11 product technologies where we believed we were world class. Certain surface active chemistries, certain bleaches, certain chelators, certain uh, polymers, certain enzymes were primarily chemists and biochemists, 10,000 chemists and biochemists. Um, certain geographies. You know, we, uh, we had long debates about the geographies, and I wanted to stay focused on initially a dozen that were 85% of our sales, 80% 80, 80 of our sales growth, most of our profit. We had a long debate about, um, I, was, I wanted us to take on China and get China really well established before we really took on India, and I had board members who wanted us to rush into India. Um, I wanted to secure Did Eastern you do it Europe. that way? That's the way we did it. And uh, I, had a, I did a million presentations on India without ever really taking much action until we <laughs> secured China. But, but we ended up in a position in our industry in China where we were several times you know, larger than and stronger than the next player. Mm -hmm. And now we're a billion dollar business in India, but India was a walled city. India was, was the home of Unilever. India, you know, Unilever had been there since the time of the Raj. And I didn't want to go charging into India until we'd secured our positions in Japan and Korea and China. We were sort of marching west, okay? Mm -hmm. um, but at, at every level, there were where choices. You know, where, which channels were we going to 
focus on first, second, and third trade channels, you know, channels of distribution. Which consumer groups were we going to focus on second, third, um, you know, first, second, and third? Uh, but it's just you layer all these choices together, and it's like a Rubik's cube, right? Eventually, it clicks, and you've got a set of choices that all go together on the where side, and then they're reinforced by your how choices and they're reinforced by your capability choices. And then if you have the right systems and measures in place, you, you start, start down the field. And that's how you really know. You know, you ask, how do you really know whether you're working? Whether it's working, you have to track the strategic measures. You absolutely have mm -hmm. to. Not just your financials, you know, not just um, your market shares and some of your other business measures. You have to ask yourself, are you gaining those positions, okay? that are competitively advantaged, that are creating value for your consumers and creating significant value for you. So and, and, and if I can just say as a follow-up to that, I love the metaphor, the Rubik's Cube metaphor, because um, there is a certain level of desire and passion required to get the Rubik's Cube all lined up. Like if you think about it, when you start with it, it's a mess and, and it's pretty easy for you to you just say to yourself, oh, life's too short, just leave it, leave it, leave it be and let everybody kind of do their own thing, which, which you have in many corporations where they'll talk about strategy, but in fact, everybody's kind of uh, doing, their, doing their own thing. So, so you've got to kind of stick with it and stick to it and say, no, we need to have th these things all lined up so that they all fit and reinforce uh, one another, and and I would say just from the experience of of going from 2000 to 2009, uh, from the start to the end of AG's time, it you know it sure started to feel good as you could start to see, hey man, we've got most of the cubes lined up. There's only a few out, and I can imagine how to get there. In the early days, I would say in 2000 2001, it it, it uh, even though a great company and everything, there was not a sense of clear choicefulness. And an, an, an alignment that uh, of, of all the businesses uh, uh, throughout it. So, so it required that desire. Did did you make those decisions then based on data? How much? <laughs> what was your reliance? Yeah, on that's data? a great question. Um, I would say in two thousand, um, Roger, we maybe had three or four out of twenty to twenty five that I thought think we were really maybe yeah. two or three that we thought we were in, in a reasonably shape. good yep. you know strong I would position. So. Yeah. Um, Joel asked a great question, and we had a good discussion on this um, in, in, in the other room, and, and, and I'll, just, I'll just headline the answer. We, we did our homework. You know, we did our analysis. We did our market and consumer research. Um, we did a lot of business analysis. We did a lot of analytics. We did a lot of, looked at a lot of data. But I told Joel, in the end, what we were really doing was cutting off bad choices and improving our odds. In the end, in almost every case, there's a significant amount of judgment involved. And that's why one of the big things Roger and I tried to do over that decade is enable a whole group of women and men who were leading these businesses, leading these brands, leading these channels, leading these countries. We tried to help them become better strategists. We could ask the questions so they could begin to turn their Rubik's Cube, mm -hmm. but they had to find the strategic choice set that worked for them and their team and their business. Because ultimately, 
they were going to go to market and execute it. So yes, data is important, but it never gives you the answer. <laughs> so, so you mentioned earlier uh, when we were talking about the importance of understanding the logic in lieu of data. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, what I, what I often find is that people sort of confuse those, those two things and say, if you don't have piles of data, you're just working on gut feel or intuition and you, and you aren't logical. Um, I, I don't believe that's the case, and I think it's more useful to actually think of those two things as separate, as causal relationships being logical. So, so uh, I think if we offer consumers this, they will like it and buy it. That's a logical connection between what we offer and, and what they'll buy. Data is you go out and, and, and do, do, some, do some research, do some observation, however you do it, to, f to figure out whether, in fact, that causal relationship is operative. Um, I, I think in this complicated world that we live in, uh, 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 and, and a new world where we're trying new things, there's often little or no what we would think of as data, or at least not rigorous, consistent mounds of, of data. But that doesn't mean that you don't have logical structures to, thi to think about your businesses. And what we tried to enforce at at, uh, at Proctor with the, with the businesses is they needed to have a logic. And we understood that sometimes there wouldn't be enough data and in fact we encouraged them to make judgments based on not a whole lot of data, but to make sure that we understood the logic of what they were doing. And why that is, is because if you've, if you've laid out the logic, you know, we're going, we're going to launch this product because we think consumers think this way, the competitors will do this, the, the distribution channel will help us in this way, uh, and new competitors won't enter. If you've got that logic, then you can watch as the data comes in and course correct more quickly. If you just say, ah, let's, let's give this a try, we don't have any data, so we'll just give something a try, then you, then you don't know what to watch for because you don't know what data would be handy uh, uh, and, and, would, and would, would tell you what's actually happening as, as it goes along. And I think, if I can say that, that also, what, what, what we tried to do is make sure that was a dialogue with, with the business, uh, business units. So what we tried to do is change the, the sort of the gestalt of those, the, the meetings with, with the business units from we're reviewing them. You know, they have to come in and prove to us and we will review them and tear them to shreds if, they're, if they don't have anything right to rather a dialogue where we would just go back and forth and try and understand one another's uh, logic and help them uh, build their logic, make their logic uh, stronger and ask the question, what piece of that logic is the most critical and the one where we have the least data, is there any way we can go out and get that data? Rather than every data, piece of data under the sun, that one piece of, uh, of data. So, so you talked about um, the how to win as one of the elements. Mm -hmm. You have to know how to, how to win. That's an element of strategy. Typically, people don't necessarily include that as strategy. The how might be execution or it mm -hmm. might be operations, but you're including it in your definition of strategy. We are, and I, I think, Joel, some of the more interesting and unique strategy choices that we made were in the how area, and we tell a few of the stories in the book, but you may recall, you know, the story of 
of the strategy with Clorox, a fierce competitor. Yeah. Okay. Um, the story of uh, how we created from $30 million a $3 billion fragrance business. You know, um, you know nobody, nobody knows that P&G is the maker of Gucci or Escada or, you know, Anna. I mean, you know, we make some of the finest fragrances in the world and we're one of the leaders in the, in the fragrance business. The way we did global business shared services, every one of those, I would argue, was a strategy that hadn't, certainly hadn't been done before in our industry. Um, and they were hows. And um, the, the dialogue would go something like this. We'd look at all the usual choices and we'd go, mm, not good enough. <laughs> okay, okay, but not good enough. And, and what would be an example well, of an a example, company or a, a brand? Well, an example or? was the Clorox story. We, um, we had three marvelous technologies for wraps, bags, and containers that had been invented by P&G chemists. We had actually test marketed one of them as a new brand and taken a 30 share of the bags and wraps market. So we knew we had a real product and we knew we had real technologies backing it up. Uh, the market was an oligopoly. There were three players. Um, as soon as we showed interest, SC Johnson, who had Saran Wrap, bought one of the players. Clorox, who had Glad, bought a second of the player. And the third player refused to sell. So there we are, stuck on the sideline. They won't let us into the poker game. So um, <laughs> we were going to sort of do one of the usual things, either sell our technologies, right? or license our technologies. That's what most companies do. That's what we had done before. Or try and bludgeon our way in, into yeah, the business. Yeah, or do something stupid, you know, <laughs> like take, take on this three-walled cities, you know, like Custer took on the Sioux. And, um, you know, I said, no, I, you know, I don't like any of that. They're just not good enough. We, gotta, we have to find a third way. And next week, the Clorox and P&G teams are going to test the 10th year of this joint venture. So two companies that were fiercely competitive in the laundry business decided to do a joint venture. We broached the idea. We said we'd be willing to be minority partners so they could run it. We said we'd put in our technologies and a couple, 20 people or so. Um, they'd own the brand. They'd own the manufacturing. They'd own the distribution and sales and we would share in the profits. And we created from 400, they had a $400 million declining GLAD business that is now well over a billion dollars and is very profitable. And it was driven by our product. We took a commodity industry and made it a differentiated product industry. And, and that it, was a joint venture. It was a joint venture, but a joint venture with a fierce competitor, it just doesn't happen. In, in most industries. Where Procter right? and Gamble took a minority position when they, Which when we the Clorox people said, yeah, they couldn't believe this it. can't be. Yeah. Yeah. The old Procter would have had to have control. You know, we didn't, and yeah. you know, I won't tell the whole fragrance story, but basically we totally rethought the, the fragrance business and we, we ended up with the leading, one of the three leading fragrance and, businesses in the world. And when you say fragrance business, are I'm you talking, talking about um, two things. One was um, there's a fine fragrance business, which is at about about an eight to ten billion dollar category where you think of the perfumes that you buy at the perfume counters and the department stores and the specialty stores. And um, we had a very small position, thirty million dollars worth of that. And we ended up being one of the three leaders in that business with LVMH and, uh, and L'Oreal. Okay? We also are far and away the most profitable company in the business. So we're 
you know, we have the same share as they do and we're profitable. But here, but here was the big idea. The big idea is we came to understand that fragrance was incredibly important to consumers across all of our household care and personal care products um, in terms of product acceptance, product involvement, and product preference. So we built a world-class fragrance house and we became partners with the best fragrance houses in the world. And um, it was a hugely powerful decision. So one of our core technologies became you know, perfumes and fragrances. And we, we became really good at formulating them with our partners. We found ways to, to make great fragrances at lower costs. We found ways to, to make them work in all different, of different kinds of product chemical situations which aren't especially friendly to fragrance. So, um, talk about the cookie monster. <laughs> I'd, li I'd like to hear... <laughs> well, th 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 this, this was sort of uh, the very, very start of the relationship, which is, which is that uh, uh, in about 83 or 84, I guess, uh, Procter & Gamble invented a way to make a cookie that was soft in the middle and crunchy on the outside. Do you remember this? Duncan Hines uh, 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 cookies launched in 85. Chocolate chip cookie, and uh, and it was a. Unfortunately, it uh, raised the ire of the dominant player uh, in the in the business, Nabisco, which had Chips Ahoy, of course, and Keebler, uh, and uh, who actually stole stole our, our our trade secrets, and we sued them, and 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 won. But in the in the process, it made it a miserable business, and. Uh, um, and that is when uh, John Smale, the late John Smale, a fantastic, wonderful uh, CEO, uh, hired uh, uh, Mike Porter, and, who was a colleague of mine at, at the time, and, and several of us to come in and, and start working with, uh, with Proctor on, on strategy. And, uh, and that's, what, that's what started the, the relationship where I, I, I met, uh, met AG, um, although it, it was the first time of three times that I and or and the company together was fired because John John Smale is a great man. He was one of the great presidents of, of Procter and Gamble. And when we told him that uh, uh, that the cookie business was at a state where he'd have to invest another four hundred to six hundred million dollars to to have a reasonable goal and not to get too deep, deeply into it, the thing that Procter & Gamble missed out on is that uh, the assumption was if you made a better cookie than any cookie that the, the, the user uh, or the consumer had available, uh, they would choose that and choose that cookie every week that they bought the cookie. And it turns out that that's not how moms buy cookies. They rotate through a set of cookies and it's, and it's uh, chocolate chip uh, one week uh, Oreo, the next week uh, peanut butter cookie, the next the, the next week, etc. So anyway, we told them you'd have to now have a whole line of these kind of soft cookies, and that'll cost you another six hundred million dollars. And given how much these folks are fighting, I wouldn't do it. I would just uh, exit. And John Blessem said, "I didn't hire you to tell me to retreat. I hired <laughs> you to tell me how to win." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you even know this this story, but but anyway, he he fired us. He just said, "You're you're gone." And uh, uh, nicely though, he is an extremely nice man. No, no, I have nothing. nothing it didn't feel like you were fired. No, 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 no. exactly, exactly. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, so 
Mm -hmm. uh, about a year and a half later, the cookie business kind of unfolded a little more like we said than what he might have hoped it would. And so he phoned us up and, and, and said, basically, you people are irritating, but there's something, there's something that you saw that we didn't see come teach our category uh, uh, teams mm -hmm. how you think about uh, strategy. And so he rehired us and I worked on this uh, a program to teach the, the category strategy and that was uh, 87 to 89 and off, off we went. And then I was lucky, I was in the class. I was running the laundry business in North America, so I got to go to the class. And, and is that when your collaboration began? Well, that's when we, first, yeah, we first met, and, um, and we did some work in laundry, some actually some very important work in laundry yeah. um, on pricing and price positioning, yeah. okay, pricing yeah. strategy. And uh, then I went off to Asia for five years, uh, and then I came back in the end of, of the 90s, and I was there less than 18 months, and I ended up in this new job, and I called Roger and said, would you please <laughs> come back? Give, give us another chance. Because then, chance. when I was at, when I was at, when he was in Asia, I got fired the second time. And when he uh -huh. and when he came back from Asia, I got fired. The third, I had nothing the third to time. do with that. No, he didn't firing. have anything to, but to you, do with it. But you you kept him. I knew. <laughs> no, no, no. I I I, I I'd always back. I'd always stayed in touch with Roger. Yeah. Um, <laughs> look, it's uh, you know we had a great we had a great partnership because it was a totally objective, totally open kimono approach to the choices. And, you know, a big part of it is trying to define <laughs> the choices, right, and clarify the choices and then sort of sort through them. And we'd set aside a day every two to three months and we'd go off-site somewhere and um, we'd sort of, I, I had a notebook and I had a very old school in terms of technology and we we would work our way through, you know, the strategic um, issues, and some of them, as I told you, Joel, we we'd resolve in a in a meeting or two. Um, some of them we would uh, we would take back a clearer point of view to one of the businesses or or brands, and uh, some some finally yielded after <laughs> months or years, and you know, some stayed on the list, right? Because we we never felt either we. They didn't move up the priorities, or we didn't feel that we had a had a good approach. Um, so it, we, you know, it was it was terrific because, you know, Roger Roger had the courage to tell the emperor he had no clothes. Roger, um, I think Roger and I were incredibly transparent and honest with each other, and there was just, uh, you know, it's it, it's hard. The CEO job is incredibly lonely. Um, most people that uh, come to see you have an agenda, and Roger and I only had one agenda, you know, one agenda, and that was to find a way to improve the strategic capability of the management of the company and find a way to get better strategies at the company and business unit level. We're, we're going to open it up for questions in, in, a, in a minute or so, but I, I wanted to ask one, uh, both, both of you, has the... Has online, has the digital world changed strategy? Or do you approach strategy the same way, you just have different uh, wheres and hows? Yeah, yeah, it, I, I think the, the, last, the last thing is the right thing, which is in some sense, you know, kind of uh, uh, online has created another 
where in terms of a distribution channel. It's created another how in terms of, uh, of uh, ways that you can communicate with uh, customers to do, like we do lots of consumer testing uh, online that we've had to do in uh, kind of in real uh, real life in situ uh, before. So it, it's, it's, add, it's added an, an, another kind of, you know, kind of wonderful dimension. I mean, for anybody who likes to think of themselves as, as sort of being kind of a, a strategically oriented person, a little bit of complexity doesn't hurt, right? It, it, it's nice when it's a little more complicated a situation because that gives more opportunity to find really nifty, uh, nifty solutions. And so I, I think the coming of online internet, whatever, just makes a lot of, a lot of businesses a little, little more uh, complicated and that's a little more fun and, uh, and there's a little more opportunity for uh, cool competitive advantages. And, and one more question before we we get to the first question. Yeah, <laughs> and that is, what do you have against focus groups? <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness, where do I start? Yeah, yeah, where do I start? <laughs> just don't do them. Yeah, that, that, I, just, that's the I just don't. I just, just don't think. Just say real, no. That's an anti-rig. I don't think that that you gain any real consumer understanding, you know, from a focus group. You gain all sorts of great understanding of focus group leaders, though. Yeah, <laughs> right. You, you get to you get to know with pin, get, pinpoint accuracy what focus group leaders think because everybody in the focus group at the end of the focus group will think whatever the focus group leader thinks. So <laughs> if you're selling a product, maybe like a little microphone for focus group leaders or something like that, That's right. then focus groups are really good because you'll find out what focus group leaders like. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so um, let's uh, we'll we'll start the questions. We we have one here. Uh, I think this is appropriate for you, I think AG, this wins since, mine, right? Yeah. Since, since okay. you're, uh, do you since believe? Well, for, okay. Do you yep. believe that a Wall Street activist investor could run P and G better than P and G's management? Okay. First of all, um, two two uh, points for full disclosure. Um, one, I am no longer an employee of the company. I, I've been gone since the end of February um, in 2010. But two, I am a partner at Clayton Dubelier and Rice. Clayton Dubelier and Rice is a private equity partnership in New York, and we have at any time 15 to 20 companies under management. So, um, you know, my answer is no. I don't think they could run GE better. I don't think they could run P&G better. I don't think they could run Caterpillar better. I don't think they could run any large, multi-business, complex company that has a real long-term view. We don't think in terms of quarters at P&G. We really don't. One of the big things we did that freed up our strategy is I just took the quarterly pressure away. I took the goals down. Um, I told the street it was going to take us two to three years to turn it around. It actually took us 18 months to 24 months, and then we started outperforming, and they left us alone. Well, I also, frankly, tried to change my investor base. You know, the last, the last investor you want in P&G is a hedge fund, you know, which with totally different financial objectives, okay? Um, so we thought in terms of decades, we were 175 years old, we're working on technologies that might come to fruition five to 10 years from now. Um, now, is there a role for financial investors? and short-term operational focus. Definitely in private equity, you know, we buy fix-it-ups, we buy orphans, we buy underperforming businesses that if we can improve the operations of, improve the capital structure of, improve the management of, 
the asset is worth more, and then we can move it on to either the public market, we can move it on to a strategic, or we can move it on to the next financial investor. But, you know, short, short answer, not, not a good fit for P&G. Comments, Roger? Do you agree, disagree? Well, I, I agree entirely, and, and um, I mean, I think you've got to distinguish, um, in, in the case of the uh, activist investor in question, um, there's a great track record of making lots of money on, on sort of capital market plays. I can get you to split up your company into three and there'll be a pop in the price. And I don't actually have to worry about whether the three companies do better afterwards. I sell the minute there's a pop in the price or I force you to sell this, uh, this asset off. That's one set of, set of, uh, set of investments they've done well. There's another set of investments, which is I'll take an operating company and improve its operations. Uh, so that would be Borders, and that would be JCPenney, and the results of are that, poor. Uh, of that, and, uh, that uh, segment of their business are, are poor. And I think that will continue to be the, the, uh, the, the case that uh, they're good at one thing, which is capital market pops and not so good at another thing, which is operating a real business. Okay. So we have uh, another question. From a strategic perspective, would it have been better to sell off the entire food segment at once, or was the board correct in forcing you to meter it out over time? Okay. Um, it wouldn't have made sense to sell it all together. It, it had to be... Um, it had to be separated into logical strategic pieces. So selling all of the coffee businesses together to a strategic, okay, made sense. It didn't necessarily make sense to sell snacks with coffee, you know, or baking mix and, and, uh, and, and shortening in oils with coffee, okay? So I think, um, on the other hand, um, I don't think we needed nine years, <laughs> okay, <laughs> to work through the sales because... He's not bitter. <laughs> I'm not. The, the, the truth of the matter is we had strategics approach us on a couple of these businesses early on, and, um, you know, we would have, time value of money, we would have realized the sales proceeds um, earlier. We could have, um, you know... Um, made some of the other investments earlier, so you, you do need to you do need to take assets and put them into logical groupings, strategic groupings, so they they sell for the best price to the right, you know, the right owner. And and I would say, uh, correct me if you think otherwise, AG, but we had a succession of two CFOs, Clay uh, Daly and and John Moeller, who did wonderful jobs, like p packing them off mm -hmm. and figuring out who the perfect yeah. The perfect buyer is. Yeah. yeah, we did. Do we have? Uh, mi there are microphones here. here. Uh, yeah, wait, wait till you have a microphone, please. Okay. I mean, I, uh, actually, I probably don't even need one. But okay. Um, <laughs> thank you for your answer to your questions. But can you tell us a story when the the what made sense, but the how did not, sure. and that you knew what you wanted to do, but how it came about could have been done differently or you know hindsight is easy maybe to say yeah. now but something maybe to learn from I don't know I, I and you're asking yeah. a great question where where we gotten you know in general most of our mistakes were made 
most of our biggest mistakes were made when we misread the consumer, either the precision, you know, who exactly was going to be the primary or strategic consumer. No, not the focus groups. So that, they were deadly. Yeah, they were deadly. But, you know, did, were we targeting the right, um, you know, the right prospect, the right prime prospect? Or we missed, and, and we missed this, if we didn't really understand the need or want, or if we couldn't change the consumer habit. Okay? I, I told the story earlier tonight. I'll, I'll tell it very quickly. We created uh, the what was... Uh, a new category of product, and this was created in the mid-90s, okay? It was an all-natural ingredient fruit and vegetable wash because we thought you were saying in those focus groups you were eating more fruits and vegetables, but you weren't telling us the truth. Um, we were, it was a very simple product. It came in two forms. One was, was a soak for vegetables, you know, cauliflower, broccoli, stuff like that. The other was a spray for apples, pears, et cetera, et cetera. And um, we could not change consumer habits. We could not change enough consumers' habits. A, very, a few people bought the product, loved the product, used the product, but most people either bought it and then it went under the sink and it never came out, or they said, gee, I don't need it. I'm just going to run the fruit and vegetables under the tap water, which is, I hate to say it, still the habit of choice in, in America. The other habit we couldn't change was in the grocery stores, um, the retailers would not shelve, would not display fit in the produce section. And they continued to put it with the other household care and kitchen care products, you know, in the aisle. And so, you know, the consumer doesn't make the link, right? But if it's sitting there next to the broccoli or it's sitting there next to the lettuce, we would have, I think, had a much better chance at trial. But that's a perfect example of we had a pretty clear what. The logic, to Roger's point, was good. We didn't have a lot of data we needed. We didn't know how many people would try it. We didn't know how many people would buy it. We didn't know how much you'd pay for it. And we didn't know whether you'd use it or how you'd use it when you got it into the home. So we missed on the how. You know, we missed on the how. Um, I would say, in some ways, the where and the, the where is, you know, some great strategies are made of not so obvious wares, but for a lot of our businesses, the wares were not the most difficult part. Um, but we had trouble with the hows, and sometimes we didn't get all the capabilities in place that we really needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have another question here about focus groups. Um, If not focus groups, then how do you know your uh, customer, and what do you use in place of focus groups? Okay, we use a lot of consumer um, understanding techniques. I'll give you my favorite. Okay, my favorite is a much more anthropological approach where we spend a lot of time with one woman in her household, and you go in-depth. Okay. Now, we use a lot of broad survey approaches, and we use a lot of in-depth approaches, but I think you get more when you go deep. Um, we talked about this earlier. You know, I agree with Steve Jobs. Consumers cannot tell you what they want. It's impossible. Nobody could describe fit. Nobody can describe a Swiffer. You know, nobody can describe Febreze, all right? Um, but when you have the concept and you have a a simple prototype, and you put it in front of them, 
they will respond to that stimulus. And if you put it in some kind of market stimulation or you put it in the marketplace, they'll respond. They'll buy it or not buy it. They'll try it or not try it. You know, they'll use it or not use it, et cetera. So um, yeah, we had a lot of techniques. Some were proprietary, some weren't, but I would say more in depth. And, and, and just also, I'd just say, I'd, I'd agree the same thing. It, it's also the sequencing of the techniques are yeah. so important, right? So you go depth, anthropological, lots of observational, don't even ask them, just watch them, then go deep in asking them, and then you can go broad and quantitative after you've sort of figured out right. what specifically you're after. What, what lots of companies do is go to broad quantitative too soon before they have a clue what they're talking about, or, or a clue what they should be asking, and, and then also they use focus groups. So we have That's one here. Roger, can you provide some examples of other companies that have successfully applied your approach to strategy? And I hope you don't say Unilever. <laughs> no, <laughs> I would get shot in the head if I, if I did, uh, did that. Um, the office furniture company, Steelcase. Um, the toy company, Lego. Um, a company that uh, is a company you've probably never heard of called VF Corporation, uh, but they own Timberland and North Face and Vans and Nautica and the like. Those would be some some companies who... Uh, Cincinnati uh, Center City Development, Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park. I mean, these were incredible resurrections. And um, we, we, I would say we gave them the light version mm -hmm. <laughs> of this. But, I mean, working through the choices was, was huge. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure it works for very small companies, and I'm pretty sure it works for not-for-profits. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure it works in startup businesses who, who often skip the strat. You know, they, they've got their wowie zowie technology or their wowie zowie new product or service, the one-off, um, and they don't really want to spend much time thinking about strategy. And a lot would do a lot better if they did. So you can apply it to nonprofits. Uh, yeah, you know, I've um, been busily applying it to Tennis Canada. I'm the chairman of the Canadian equivalent of the U.S. Uh, tennis uh, Association, and uh, nine years ago we embarked on a strategy of rather than playing to play, play to win, and uh, we, this last year, we, there are eight singles champions of the junior Grand Slams, right, the four Grand Slams of a boys and girls uh, championship. We won three of them, and no other country won more than one. Congratulations. Uh, we've never won one in the history of Canada before, before uh, this year. So same stuff, where to play, how to win. And if I could just say, imagine if we had an energy strategy in this country. <laughs> I mean, I've been looking, watching this for five decades, right? And it's not complicated. I was very heartened by the, um, by the coming together of the stakeholders on um, you know, sort of the principles and the standards, the environmental standards for, um, you know, shale gas retrieval. That was a huge step forward. But to me, it's so obvious. I mean, we are on the brink of real energy self-sufficiency in a very turbulent and volatile world. And I think we can find an economically and environmentally responsible way to develop it. At least that's my personal point of view. But nobody has outlined the strategy and it's just a handful of choices. We wouldn't be talking about sequester, a word I still can't spell. Um, you know, if we had, the, the, the President's Deficit Reduction Commission actually gave us the outline of a strategy. There were some very clear choices there, and that could have been, you know, the blueprint that was taken to Congress and then at least the debate.
discussion and dialogue could have begun from there. But, you know, we didn't do it. Um, infrastructure, education. You know, government is, government at the local level, I have seen civic government when they're, usually when they're in dire straits, you know, decide they have to make a few choices and they have, you know, they have a primitive strategy and they, you know, they make some progress. But it's extremely difficult for government to, you know, to, uh, to make any kind of a strategic decision. Unless there's a war going on. We have one. Uh, and even then, it's hard. Thank you. I just uh, did a quick search on Amazon. There are about 200,000 books listed under strategy. That's lower. When I did it, I had 300 and some thousand. It's frightening. It's frightening. I've read 100,000 of them at least, and, and this is, this is <laughs> among the top five. So, so, so how, how do you view balancing, you know, many, many companies are out there looking for the killer strategy, yeah. but is it strategy or is it execution? How, how do you view that? <laughs> I'm going to, Roger's winding up on yeah, the second no, no, half no. of that question. No, I've answered it once already <laughs> but, then. No. It, look, no. on the first one, um, <laughs> you know, Roger and I tried very hard to create something that we thought was a do-it-yourself, very practical, we know it works from experience, book on strategy that essentially has uh, three pieces, the five-choice five cascade, a very simple logic flow to help you frame your choices, and a very simple process for reverse engineering choice alternatives and, and asking what, what would have to be true. Anybody can do it. You can do it at your corner bookstore, you can do it at the General Electric Company. You could do it at the federal government, okay? So we were looking for something timeless. What's different about the book is that in our, is one, it's practical, and the other is in our model, um, we believe you have to make the positioning choices and the competency choices. And, you know, Roger's better versed than I am at this, but most of those prior books, the good ones, either talked about the positioning approach, right? Mm -hmm. Or they talked about the competency approach, and we think you need both, okay? And Roger will tell, look at, the simple answer to your last question is, what are you gonna execute if you haven't made a strategic choice, and how do you know whether it's the right thing? And, nope, and just, that to, is very just good to remind people, the, the book is on sale if you want the best book on strategy. <laughs> and and uh, the authors, the co-authors will sign it. You had a comment, Roger? No, no, no. I thought AG said, AG said it very well, as per usual. Thank you. In, in 1958, I graduated as an engineer, and the job I most wanted was at Procter & Gamble, and they did a handwriting analysis as part of the interview process. <laughs> I you didn't know, it's a really good thing that so they don't do that So now. the question <laughs> is, when did they stop, and what did they learn while they were doing it? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea, but... You know, when I was hired, you had to take this standardized SAT-like test, you know, in 60 minutes or less and, um, and get a certain cut score. Um, no, I mean, you know, we had our methods. I'm not sure I, I understand all the madness. <laughs> We're not doing it anymore, thank goodness. <laughs> how, how do you find the capabilities and the talent, and how do you know you have the right person for the right job? Huh. Wow. Roger? Well, uh, um, you know, again, this is where strategy makes everything simpler, right? If, if you have a strategy and you know what, 
how you're trying to win, what capabilities you need, it's, it's easier to identify whether a person has talent or not. I mean, the more vague those choices are, the harder it is to tell who will do well or not. And, and most of, in my view, most of talent management uh, is done the Tom Wolf uh, way, right? The right stuff. You send them up, and if they crash and burn, you say they didn't have the right stuff, and if they succeed, you say they had the right stuff, right? <laughs> that, that's, that's how the talent management world works, and it's partially because of lack of clarity on, 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 uh, on what you really need. So what I'd say is if you can make those choices clearly, it'll help you on talent. But, you know, people are people. They're, uh, you have a fingerprint because you're unique, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and it, is, it is still a hit-and-miss uh, game. It's sort of like everything about strategy. Strategy is there to shorten your odds. You know, it's an imperfect, uh, uncertain world uh, where there are no sure things about anything. You can never hire somebody and say they'll be surely uh, six, uh, successful. Uh, but if you have a strategy, you can shorten your odds and make it likely that the person is going to be successful. Yeah, I mean, the strategic choices dictate the resources you need, right? And some of those resources are human, and some um, have very specific um, talent requirements. Um, if you haven't made the strategic choices, if you didn't decide what core capabilities we needed to win in skincare, then you wouldn't know whether that talent was inside the company or whether we had to go outside, which we did in some cases, to recruit and find the very specific um, capability and experience that we needed. So I, I you know, I think it drives, you know, so, better choices. So we have uh, another question here. So how how did you uh, translate this broader yeah. vision so that everyone understood it, and how did you get people to buy into it? Yeah. Um, well, um, we we actually have an interesting um, piece in the book about about communication, yeah. and it is um, look. When I first joined the company, everybody in the team was on the same floor, you know, in the same 20 desks. <laughs> you could walk around and, and talk to each other and, uh, and make decisions together, and it was really easy. You know, the company that we had in the last 10 years, there was managing by walking around was, was literally impossible, right? Because you were managing across time and you were managing across space. Um, and you were managing 24 by 7. So in my view, um, the world turned into one where you had to um, you know, focus the team, um, ins engage and inspire them, and then frankly unleash them. And um, you know, strategy was one of the tools we used to focus and engage. And, um, and frankly, some of the strategies were inspiring because Winning was inspiring, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, winning in the sense of making um, consumers' lives better, winning in the sense of the team created something together, a new business or, or um, a better business, um, winning in the sense of creating value for the company and value for, your, for yourself. Everybody at P&G, by the way, was an owner. We had no pensions, but we had profit-sharing trusts, and, and uh, you know, we all received uh, P&G stock every year. So, um, you know, it's, it's sort of the old, you know, people engage when they believe in the cause, they see their contribution to the cause, okay, and they're having fun, 
and growing. Okay, that's when they engage. And when you're missing any one of those three, you know, they're not going to engage. You know, did we have a hundred? Did we have ninety-six thousand and two thousand and whatever it was, one hundred and thirty thousand in two thousand and ten? Always, you know, fully engaged every day. I don't think so. You know, um, you know that would have right today. They're probably watching NCAA basketball in the U.S. <laughs> All right. You know, you know, you know. You guys have been checking the scores. I've been looking around. Um, so you know, there are a lot of distractions out there. Okay, in our social world and our digitally connected world. But I do think, um, you know, look at one place we do a lot of research is employee feedback, right? And I can guarantee you where the strategies were clearer, the performance was better, the engagement levels were higher, people felt more creative and innovative, um, they felt more involved, they liked their teammates, they, um, they respected and followed their leadership, and then they only complained about the cafeteria and their paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> may, may I just Which employees always complain about. Well, one, one thing I'd, I'd also say is AG is the best I've ever seen at being able to summarize a broad and important strategic concept in a, in a, in a catchy way that was easy to communicate. So. Uh, uh, one was when you, you know, day one almost you said the consumer is boss, right? And because he wanted the company to become more consumer oriented, more externally oriented, and that just spread like wildfire. It's not hard to figure out what he means by the consumer is boss. And then the other one was first moment of truth. Um, we wanted, we, uh, what AG wanted uh, was to make sure that, that the, the people who were taking care of our trade channel customers uh, who were who were often considered the second class citizens? The first class citizens were the ones who were taking uh, care of the, you know the, the creating the products and the brands and, and the and the like, and so uh, so he pointed out that uh, there are two moments of truth in a in a user's uh, a, a consumer's life with with P and G. One is when they put the ole on their uh, on their face or wipe up something with the bounty. Uh, but that's actually the second moment of truth. The first moment of truth is when they pick it off the store shelf. And if they don't win the first moment of truth, guess what happens to the second moment of truth? There isn't one. And so he labeled it a first, uh, first moment of truth, uh, which had, you know, which became FMOT. Everybody talked about, uh, talks about that across. Everybody knows exactly what that, that means. And, uh, and from my observation, it's it quite amazing how being able to characterize it in a very simple but evocative way uh, ended up being the best communication vehicle you could ever have, rather than having a 10-page memo about why, why taking care of the trade channel is as important as, as the end consumers. That would have gone nowhere. FMOT, everybody understands uh, what it means. And, and how do you create a culture of sharing and synergy between different groups? Yeah, I mean, you have to, you have to work on this. Um, you know, people may listen to what you say, but they watch what you do, okay? And um, if I didn't go into, every time I went out of the U.S., and especially in emerging markets. My first stop was in a store to shop with a consumer. My second stop was in a home to um, talk to and observe a consumer. And my third stop was in the office to talk about first the strategy and the talent and then the operating plan and the results. 
And once they understood the rhythm, you know, it was sort of like, golly, this guy is serious. And when I'm climbing through, you know, the barrios of Bogota or I'm, you know, I'm, I have my feet in the stream in rural China and I'm through a translator talking to a woman as she does her laundry in the stream, you know, they start to get the idea that maybe he really means the consumer is the boss, okay? And maybe the essence of strategy is we win a few more consumers, you know, who love our brands and products, pay for them weekly, use them daily, tell their friends about them, okay? And that's called building a business, right? Peter, classic Peter Drucker, the purpose of any business is to create a customer, serve that customer better than anybody else, keep that customer for life. So, um, you know, I, I just think you build a culture by what you do, all right? And um, so we tried to catch people doing things we wanted them to do, being more open, being more connected, being more collaborative, you know, being more in touch with their consumers, being more aware of their competitors, you know, all the things we wanted them to do. And, uh, and then we tried to give them feedback and correct them, you know, when they were doing things that we didn't want them to do. And that's sort of the way it goes. And when you get, you know, first one, then three, then ten, you know, um, it multiplies. And clearly it moved, right? We, Roger and I would watch this. It's just like strategy adoption. Mm -hmm. It did not move through the organization at the same rates. Okay. You know, it moved at different rates. One of our corporate strategies in the innovation side was called Connect and Develop. We opened up the innovation platform. We wanted to partner um, for invention and early stage product with anybody out there. And we went from 10% of our new brands and new products were partnered in 2000 to over 50% of all of our new brands and products were, were partnered with one or more partners by the middle of the decade. But that adoption was not the same across 25 businesses. So what you do is, you know, you get people, the people that did strategy first and did it a little bit better, all of a sudden started to get a little bit better business results. The people that did open innovation and did a little bit better, all of a sudden started to get a little bit better business results. And, you know, employees are smart as can be. Consumers are smart as can be. And they look around and they go, gee, I wonder why business B is doing so much better and having so much more fun than we are. I'd rather be like business B, okay? And that's sort of the way it works. It sounds incredibly simple, um, but I'm a big believer that a lot of the fundamentally sound things in, in life are incredibly simple. Want to add anything to that, Roger? No, I think it was well said. Well, great. Um, so I'd like to thank you, A.G. Laffley, for, Thanks, uh, for your insights, and Roger Martin, very much. Thank you You're for your welcome. insights. Uh, You're welcome. And, and thank all of you for coming, and don't forget the books. <laughs> great.
slow hand roll. Oh, we could stay inside and 